Hello friends, Ryan Rodriguez here, and this is kind of the Coolness Chronicles. You see, when preparing and doing research for the upcoming second half of our first season, I realized that there were some subjects from the first half that I wanted to discuss further, and some subjects that I neglected to mention at all. So I decided to make this little mini-sode series, The Chronicles Reconsidered, with each mini-sode focused on one film previously riffed on MST3K, or later in the year, by Riff Tracks. I'm going to watch these films in their original form and try to review them on their own merits, then compare my findings with the actual quote-unquote experiment. And believe it or not, in some cases these films have sequels and Blu-rays with bonus features, and just like the Mothership podcast, these slight detours will be part of the experience. So what do you say? Are you ready to reconsider? Reconsider the Coolness Chronicles? If so, climb aboard! We're going through a ride through some weird sh- also, spoilers. In our inaugural installment, we're going to discuss a movie that I believe only received a mere mention in Chapter 1 of the podcast, yet served as the unofficial pilot of Mystery Science Theater 3000 over at its original network, KTMA TV 23, The Green Slime. Earth. The lonely, helpless Earth. The 21st century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror. The Green Slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the Green Slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. Face against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, the shock world of Green Slime. The Green Slime is one of those rare movies that is equally awful and charming in its opening seconds, and it's an awful charm that manages to stick for most of the running time. Not all of it, because it can really drag at times, but most of it. We begin not unlike MST3K on a space station orbiting the Earth. We're treated to a barrage of cute-looking model spaceships and structures, all of which kind of look like if Jerry and Sylvia Anderson worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey instead of Douglas Trumbull. It's 
fitting considering that the creation of theirs, the Thunderbird 3, was the stock footage stand-in for the Satellite of Love in the pilot presentation. We are notified within a minute of the MGM logo that an asteroid is headed toward Earth and the space station must do something about it. A group of astronauts must shuttle off to the asteroid, drill into its core, insert some detonating charges, and blow it to shit. The second I heard this plan, I had exactly one thought. Boy, oh boy, did the makers of Armageddon rip these guys off. And they somehow made it stupider. Unlike Armageddon, however, before the non-oil drilling astronauts set off for the asteroid, we are graced with one of the cooler theme songs for a crappy movie. Don't believe me? Let's do an audio exam. Better one? Or two. Open the door, you'll find the secret. To find the answer is to keep it. You'll believe it when you find something screaming across your mind. If you prefer one, you can turn this podcast off right now. This isn't for your heathen ears. After the astronauts land and get to drilling, we're introduced to a green, slimy, congealing pond scum that covers most of the asteroid's surface. Whenever the astronauts aren't looking, the scum comes together in a positively Cronenbergian, pulsing globs of goop that look like the Toxic Avengers melting scrotum. Too soon? They plant the charges and haul ass back to the space station, but not before one of the astronauts presents a sample of that green slime. Commander! Commander Rankin! Look, pulsating! It's alive! Get rid of it. But this is a major discovery! You can't bring it with you! Now everybody get on board! You would think that by shattering that glass, they avoided tracking any slime on the ship. But you would be wrong. Dead wrong. Naturally, some stray slime sticks to the curious astronaut's leg, and when they return to their station, the slime begins to pulse and spontaneously grow, slithering out of the spaceship's storage and mutating into a large cycloptic turd-like mass with tendrils that conduct electricity. Kind of like a tamer, less psychosexual and rapey version of Alien, with elements of aliens, only with better dialogue than Jim Cameron could ever muster. Unfortunately, the only weapons at the astronauts' disposal, laser guns, make the creature self-multiply and increase in strength, not unlike a reverse gremlin. The majority of the movie consists of two lead astronauts, one handsome, one kinda scary looking, trying to find a way to destroy the creatures when they're not bickering about the lady doctor that they both love. Sidebar. I know that sounds completely implausible. A woman? Practicing medicine? What will they want next? Equal pay? The right to vote? Putting the fiction in science fiction, am I right? Huh? And ironic sidebar. The astronauts eventually find a way to get the ever-multiplying turd monsters off the space station and onto its hull, then destroy the station in order to let it descend into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up on re-entry. Doing so kills the scary-looking astronaut, which I suppose is good news for both humankind, because the turds are gone, and for the good-looking astronaut, 
because now that romantic triangle is a straight line. Despite the many instances of graphic violence like the monsters burning people's flesh, head crushing, mass electrocution, even bodies getting pulped and tremendous falls, this movie is rated G. And this was the time of Jack Valenti, so while an R may have been overly drastic, a rating of GP, essentially the precursor to both PG and PG-13 ratings, was in place at the time. The movie was actually a co-production between American studio MGM and Japanese studio Toei. At the time, they were just a lower-rent version of the main rival Toho, producers of Godzilla. In addition to Green Slime, their output was best defined by some television series and movies that would actually be featured on future seasons of MST3K. Planet Prince was riffed as Prince of Space in Season 8, followed by Invasion of the Neptune Men a few episodes later, and Yongri, Monster from the Deep, in the 2017 revival season. Today, they're probably best known for their animation studio, the cult 1970s live-action Spider-Man show, and of course the Power Rangers franchise. As the production was shot in Japan with a Japanese crew, the movie is dubbed, even though almost the entire cast was American, but at the very least English-speaking. Most foreign films at the time, especially Italian and Japanese, were shot without sound for various technical reasons and dubbed in post-production, which is why I tend to have difficulty settling in with most of these movies. There's a disconnect between the intensity of the performance given on set and the inevitably bloodless, dispassionate dubbing session, and the green slime is no exception to this. Of course, intensity of performance doesn't really apply in this particular situation, but hopefully you catch my drift. The main cast, and by that I mean the requisite love triangle, is a motley crew consisting of a television actor, a former Bond girl, and a future Academy Award nominee. For the good-looking astronaut, Robert Horton, best known for five years on Wagon Train in the late 50s and early 60s, the green slime was actually his last theatrical movie. The Lady Doctor, Luciana Paluzzi, became typecast by her outlandish, villainous role in 1965's Thunderball, as well as her villainous role in The Man from U.N.C.L.E. The scary-looking astronaut, Richard Jekyll, easily had the most prolific career of the three, appearing as a character actor in such well-regarded films as 310 to Yuma, The Dirty Dozen, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, as well as subjects of the Mothership podcast like Grizzly, discussed in Chapter 4, Walking Tall Part 2, Chapter 7, Herbie Goes Bananas, which we'll cover in Chapter 13, and Airplane 2, the sequel, a large part of Season 2 of this podcast. His Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor was for 1971's Sometimes a Great Notion. And the talent behind the camera were no slouches either. Bill Finger, the rightful creator of the version of Batman that has become embedded in the world consciousness for 80-plus years, not to mention the Joker, Robin, the Riddler, the Penguin, Two-Face, etc., was one of four screenwriters of this movie. He'll come up again on the Mothership podcast in Chapter 13 as he co-wrote the script to Experiment 1007, Track of the Moon Beast. The director, Kenji Fukusaku, had quite the resume himself, including just two years later having directed the Japanese sequences of Tora Tora Tora, Battles Without Honor or Humanity five years later, but now best known as the theme to Kill Bill, and Battle Royale 32 years later, which deserves to be remembered as the movie that The Hunger Games completely ripped off. As interesting as the movie is, the episode that it's part of has almost as rich a history. Sidebar. Some of the information relayed in the rest of this episode will sound familiar if you listen to Chapter 1 of the Mothership podcast. If you haven't listened to it, congrats. It's fucking Christmas for you. And pissy sidebar.
The actual episode, known as Experiment K-00, is difficult to discuss for several reasons. One, I've never actually seen it. In fact, most fans haven't. It was never broadcast and instead shown to the management of KTMA, a UHF station catering to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area of Minnesota. Furthermore, it was produced as a presentation pilot, which is essentially a half-to-quarter-length visual proof of concept. Not a full episode, but just a taste of what a typical episode will be if the network orders a season of shows, which KTMA did, 21 written additional episodes. Two, I and most fans haven't seen it because it was only shown once at an MST3K con- convention in 2008. I wasn't there. Neither were you, probably. And three, because of bullet points one and two, there's only one commercially available clip from the pilot, and it's part of a KTMA compilation on one of the Shout Factory DVDs, and I have to use the episode guide and fan-edited Wikipedia page and take their bits of information at face value. Kinda hard when the episode guide is written entirely with tongue firmly in cheek. The one clip that is available, however, does clearly set up the initial premise of the show, as delivered in the first ever host segment by creator Joel Hodgson. Do you think they can see us, Joel Hudson? Yeah, Crow, the transmission light is on, isn't it? (laughs) Joel Hudson, it's the first time Beeper's been seen by a human being. Uh, Present company excluded, that is. (laughs) Listen, you guys, I'm going for it. People of Earth, I am Joel Hudson. I am orbiting your planet on a man-made satellite of my own design. Please tell your president I built these robots. They are also of my own design. Also tell him that I don't like his TV shows very much, except for maybe some of the early Death Valley days. You may notice that Servo is nowhere to be found because the character didn't exist until two episodes later, Revenge of the Mysterons from Mars. In his place is Beeper, played by Josh Weinstein, who would go on to play Servo. As to why Beeper didn't last, I think you get an answer to that in that clip itself. Traceable U as Crow is also very different, as Trace was instructed to begin or end every sentence with his creator's name, much like the robot from Lost in Space. Ironically, though Joel's character goes by his real-life name during the KTMA season, he's renamed Joel Robinson once the show made the leap to Comedy Channel in 1989, that last name, of course being a reference to, you guessed it, Lost in Space. The clip also introduces a signature of Joel's run on the show, The Invention Exchange, which is a version of a bit from his stand-up act at the time, as there were many inventions exchanged during the KTMA years and the first few cable seasons. Uh, I present this invention to your planet. It is to aid all races, especially people who are suffering from back and neck and pelvis injuries. It's called the chiropractic helmet. I'll demonstrate. The last part of the clip reveals that at this stage in the show's evolution, there were no meds. I'm sure that to most Misties, it's become taken for granted that Joel was always a test subject in an experiment of sadistic emotional pain, but no. He seems to be doing it to himself, perhaps to relieve his loneliness. The Mads physically entered the picture in K07, Gamera vs. Zegra, which is kind of weird considering that it's the third Gamera movie. 
And is it really torture if you're just continuing to do what someone does to themselves? What did he say? He said being a human being must be a rush. Oh, yeah, it is. Hey, sounds like the theater's opening up. You guys better get out of here. I'll see you on the other side. You'll notice that Joel asked the bots to leave before entering the theater, and that's because Joel actually riffed solo in the pilot. It wasn't until the next episode that the bots were allowed in the Mystery Science Theater. It's probably because, out of the three robots constructed for the show the night before shooting, the fourth member of the group Cambot debuted in the following episode, only Crow could actually speak. Beeper beeped, and Gypsy, alternately called Gypsum, just grunted and moaned like a sick cow. I could describe the rest of the pilot, but let's be honest, nobody wants that. That's all I have for this week. If you're enjoying these mini-sodes, tell a friend, share it with a stranger, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, rate us on whatever source you use, and visit our Facebook page, the links to which are in the show notes for this episode. Every little share and recommendation helps immeasurably. Next Friday, we'll cover another KTMA experiment, Phase 4. Until we meet again, friends, remember, do what you love, don't be a dick, and as always... Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. I mean goodbye for now.